We will be back in the book of Mark, beginning in chapter 9. But, uh, before we begin, I'm just going to ask the Lord's blessing upon his word before we get into it. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you to ask your blessing upon your word. May it, may it come through clearly, touch our hearts, and uh, guide us into a greater understanding of who you are and your will for our lives. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The gospel according to Mark. Uh, chapter 9. Here we come to a, quite a well-known passage, you know, in, in Christianity. Pretty, again, one of those passages that are well-known for even those who are not believers. You know, if you mentioned about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, they would at least, many would have heard of it, at least in Western culture and Western countries, would have uh, heard the reference of it to some degree. And, 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 and again, in church, in Christianity, well-known passage, well-known uh, Sunday school type lesson at many times and different things, but still, it's one of those you could seems very straightforward, and it is. It always is. God's word is is a blessing because, in many ways, it's very straightforward, but also always more there than we think. So, hopefully, maybe today we see a little more than we thought for what we've known or seen and understood before. We get there again, going up, there's a lot, you know, First, my first thought in this, the Mount of Transfiguration, going up the mountain, you know, the mountaintop experience comes to mind. I've even titled this, this, uh, past, this message, A Mountaintop View of God. Mountaintop View of God. It really is, literally, because again, not rushing to the end, not, you know, spoiler alert, these men are going to go up a mountain to the top, literally with God. You don't get much more of a mountain view of God than when you're standing there with him. You do. But, the, you know, being on that mountaintop, the, the majesty, I've mentioned it before. Again, just the, 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 the beauty that you see, just the, the, dra the dramatic contrast from the heights to the valleys that you see when you are in those type of environments. Not to make anyone jealous right away, but I've been to Hawaii twice. Uh, <laughs> sorry. You can't get more of a dramatic, beautiful scenery than that because literally you are standing on, if you're on any of the islands, you are standing on a mountain that rises right out of the very ocean itself. You're surrounded by beautiful waters. The winds could not be better. It is. Uh, they say it's about as probably close to paradise on earth as you can get because really the weather there is almost never bad. <laughs> it kind of hovers around that beautiful realm of like low 80s, low humidity, very nice. But it's lush, it's tropical, it's dramatic. Again, you see these you know islands that were thrust up out of the ocean volcanic action, a very violent process actually. And sometimes you can be there on the island when it's taking place. When we were there on our, our honeymoon, we actually, uh, Amanda and I, we went out, we took a tour out onto the lava fields. It was, rather, it was one of those, you could, you could you know, take helicopter rides and all kinds of things, boat rides to see stuff, but we decided to take a, a guided tour to, to walk through the, the, the forest, the vegetation, and out onto the lava fields. And you could literally get to the point where you're seeing lava oozing out 
moving forward, creating new land for the East Side Westside Church. And if you were happy, we weren't there when it wasn't taking place when we were there, but at times you could be there when it literally meets the ocean. And a violent reaction between that hot, molten earth and rock meeting the cold water, geysers of steam blowing up in the air and waves, it's breathtaking. And it's in those realms, you know, that, you know, sometimes it's how anyone could look at such a, a, a stunning visual display and think it all just happened. It all just kind of random chance and circumstance brought it about. But that's actually a different lesson for a different time. It's on a mountain to see things. And we know in Christianity we talk about a mountaintop experience that it's usually not talking about a physical journey up the mountain. It's usually a spiritual one, a walk of faith. I don't know about you, but we probably, I assume that all of us have been at different points of that, that step of faith, taking that journey and getting to that point breathtaking beauty in seeing what God did in a particular circumstance. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see a journey that these young men, uh, young I shouldn't say, <laughs> probably in their early 30s, young compared to me now, as I am knocking on the door of 50, <laughs> who ever thought? <laughs> said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now again, at this point, we could have backed up in our reading, they are in Caesarea Philippi, in the very northern edge of the nation of Israel. Way up to the north, uh, about I think it's within 25, 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. They're up there, they journeyed and the Lord began teaching for the very first time about his death, burial, and resurrection, about his going to the cross. And as he's addressing the crowds as well, to the point he ends with this statement, surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God with power. Promise that someone are going to witness this. Imagine that again context of this Jewish group of people. How large it was, don't know. It was more than just the twelve. Something that they'd been anticipating, waiting for, praying for for thousands of years, generations. Again, as the Lord has been preaching this, and he said that there's some standing here who are going to see it before they die. With power. And again, that's what they've been waiting for kingdom of God with power to vanquish these Romans, these Gentile dogs, and establish the Jewish kingdom that they always envisioned. Preeminent on the nation. Yes. That's what we're looking forward to now, Lord. Bring it. So this promise, some of them would witness this glorious reality. But it brings us to verse 2. It says, Now after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart from himself. And he had transfigured 
see a spectacular mountaintop view. Again, any view from the mountain is spectacular. It really is. I've been on a few, even when it's cloud covered at times, it's still spectacular. It's still awesome. These men get a spectacular mountaintop view when they see Jesus Christ transfigured before them. It's interesting, the time element that, that they give here, it's interesting how, how often Scripture gives different time references. How often it can be very general, very vague in some ways, and then very, very specific. It's interesting, at this point, they chose to give a very specific time reference. I'm not going to pretend the, the, the significance of this, but I find it interesting. After six days, he picks three men, out of the 12, he picks Peter, James, and John. Now, we know most of the time maybe they were this three. They were the inner circle, his closest guys. Here he picks three. And he takes three with him. And after six days, takes them up. Now, this event of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ is recorded in both in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, John. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. There's one difference. Matthew records this time statement the same as, as Mark does. Six days, and then he takes them up. Luke, if you turn your pick, turn there, but keep your finger here in Mark. Luke chapter 9. Verse 28. Luke 9, 28. Luke records it. As now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to be transfigured. Discrepancy? Error? No. No. Part I bring this out, maybe a side note, but this is one of those things that some people not knowing well, trying to get a Christian or a believer in a gotcha, is like, ah, these things how come it says six here and eight there? Somebody's wrong. Lucy, you got some splendor, though. Okay, someone got my reference, sorry. It's really not that complicated. One, uh, there were different ways of counting time back then. That a half day would count as a full day. I think in Math, Mark and Matthew possibly could begin their time reference begins at the beginning of the journey. After six days, then they went up. Where Luke includes the entire journey up the mountain. Two more days to get up. Well, I guess what I'm saying is after six days, they left Caesarea Philippi to go to the mountain where Luke possibly included the two days it took because it was 12 miles from Caesarea Philippi to get to Mount Hermon, which is most likely the mountain that they were on. Very possible. Also possible, some people just count days differently. I'll give you an example. If you have a certain date ahead, a birthday perhaps, and it's a week out, do you count the day of the birthday? as part of that week or the day before? I guess I'm saying some people will count the day up to 
when they're saying it's seven days until. Some people will say, though, but it's seven days and then, counting the day of the Lord's coming. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know, but sometimes it could just be that simple. The way one person records an event and another records it. The one states the events, how they take place. Nothing missed, nothing, no discrepancy. Again, different individuals writing the account, different individuals and their personalities. These things. But either way, they get up the mountain. They're about to have themselves quite an experience. As it says, and Jesus was transfigured before them. Transfigured to change into another form. Physical appearance, yes, but so much more than that. You still have your finger back in Mark because that's where we're going to be at. Mark 9 back there. Verse 3, when it says, His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Again, just everything about his physical appearance changed. White, brilliantly white. Like no other one. I don't know about you, but yeah. Like no other launderer on earth can launder. I don't know what they had back then for whitening clothes. Now today they've got all kinds of things, you know, bleach, Clorox, this, that, and the other thing. Might never get brilliantly white. Well, before I was married, my wife did a much better job. I always seemed to have something that would infiltrate the whites, and they'd come out a little <laughs> funkified. Nothing. I think it gives the idea of snow of so brilliantly white, like almost the very essence of light itself. Shining. Transformed. But again, more than is it the, the clothes, his very being transformed, revealed, really. The essence of who this was brought out to bear for these men. What they've never seen before. Transformed drastically, dramatically, powerfully. Again, like I said, there are some of you who will see the kingdom of God with power. And I think that's what they were seeing here. The power of God on the very mountain. But the view gets even better, if it could. And verse 4. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses were there as well. These two great figures from the past. Moses, the deliverer, the lawgiver. Elijah, the great prophet, defender of the worship of God against the, the prophets of Baal. Powerful in, his, in the working of God through him, the spirit of God. Interesting, Elijah taken up by a chariot of fire. Didn't taste death on the mountain. And Moses, who was buried by God himself, was there. Two great witnesses, these two great men in Israel's history, there, standing on the mountain with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
messages. How did these men know who it was? No pictures. No photographs. How did they know who it was? Well, our verse actually tells us in Ezra, it says they were talking with him, conversing with him. Now, how long this conversation came on? Pastor Lynn said it's one of those passages, like so many, you wish, I'd love to see this replay. I'd love to hear that conversation. I mean, one, did Moses and Elijah impart to God himself? I don't know, but apparently they had something. They were sent there for a reason, sent there for a purpose. What were they talking about? I should have told you to keep your finger in Luke again. Okay? Keep your finger in Mark. Turn back to Luke. Because Luke gives us the clue or the point of what this conversation is centering on. Back in Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, beginning in verse 29. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The cross. Just like before, down in Caesarea Philippi, when he began to tell them for the first time about his coming death, what these men were talking to the Lord about. His coming death. Again, what did that encompass? I don't know. I can speculate partially that it was encompassed of the Lord teaching them. That perhaps they, Moses himself who died would be going back to Abraham's bosom. Would be going back to impart encouragement to the believers, the Jewish believers who were there their time of deliverance, so to speak, from that part and into glory was nigh at hand? I don't know. That's what they were talking about. That great event, the greatest event that was about to take place was finally at hand. That's what they were on the mountaintop discussing and talking about. That moment, that all moments were leading up to blood that would purchase the salvation of mankind. What a conversation. Imagine the humbling attitudes of these men. I wonder what the thoughts of his friends were thinking again as they heard him discussing these things. Let me get a clue. <laughs> to some degree, you turn your finger back to Mark, I know I've got you going back and up on top of the mountain. They had a great view. They, the view got even amazing, more amazing. That's a terrible word for it, isn't it? But in verse 5 of chapter 9, Peter kind of spoils the view for a moment. Verse 5, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
because he did not know what to say. And they were greatly afraid. Greatly afraid. So no one knew what to say. And Peter comes riding into the rescue. I'll say something. He speaks up. Impulsively, Peter's known to do. God bless him. <laughs> Typical of him. And he's excited. Again, I think part, again, that, that, that statement that the Lord made only about six to eight days prior. Some of you will see the kingdom of God. Power. They were seeing it. Again, power of God visibly on display. The, the Lord Jesus Christ shining like light itself. It says they were afraid. I'm going to butcher this Greek word, but ekphobia. Pastor Lynn can correct me later. Seems to give the sense of where we get the idea of phobia. But the, the, the definition is really frightened out of one's wits. This is not the, the reverential fear that they've had at other times. This is them literally terrified. Which kind of makes sense when you're seeing the power of God shining all around you. I mean, God told Moses, no one can see my glory and live. I mean, these guys were getting that that backside of God, and it overwhelmed them to the point of being terrified. And who is this man? Terrified. And Peter says, it is good for us to be here. And you should build three tabernacles, three booths, one for each of you. Mark Twain has a way of turning a phrase that few writers do. He said, it's better to keep your mouth shut and appear stupid than to open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> I chuckled because, man, I, that's why I identify with Peter so well. <laughs> I may not have said that exact thing, but I probably would have said something similar. <laughs> Again, that aspect, I would love to see this because the, the comic side of me could almost see the Lord and Elijah and Moses doing that slow turn as Peter says this. He says, Who's this guy? <laughs> Did you bring him? He's all right. He's a work in progress. Just like you. I don't think actually Moses or Elijah would have said they knew their faults probably better than anybody. They probably thought, Shh, Peter. being up on the, moment, on the mountaintop, sometimes you just got to enjoy the view. Be in the moment. Sometimes you hear that. I think sometimes we can get wrapped up in our circumstances, and even when we, we, we see God at work and we've known what he's doing, we understand it. We want to put word to it. And sometimes... try to explain it. 
enjoy it for what it is. So Peter, in his moment here, in his desire to say something in his fear, makes an incorrect assertion, an incorrect statement. It seems it doesn't seem that way at first. It seems like rather honoring. Let's make some tabernacles. Let's be here. This is great. This is amazing. When we look at it, we see he's making the Lord Jesus Christ an equality to Moses and Elijah. Actually, flip that. He's making Moses and Elijah equal to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're going to make a tabernacle. We're going to make a booth. We're going to be up here and worship. Yeah, there is one God. And we worship him alone. There's any doubt that Peter spoke in error, it comes in the very next verse, verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. God the Father sets the record straight. God shows up. God the Father shows up. Again, as if the view and the experience up on the mountain couldn't get any grander, couldn't get any more magnificent. God the Father steps in. Overshadowed by a cloud. I couldn't help but imagine, but it's the same experience as what Moses experienced and the Jews experienced down in Sinai. Cloud upon the mountain. As God descended upon it and spoke with Father speaks. Again, in this short passage, there's only two people who speak that's recorded. Peter and God the Father. This is my beloved son. Giving recognition and endorsement to his son. My beloved son. My only son. Making it clear that the true equality needs to be recognized between God the Son and God the Father. Similar to his baptism, the beginning of his ministry. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, the context of that, he's moving on towards the cross. They were just talking about his eventual death know what kind of trepidation and fear might have been going through the Lord. I only say that because we know he was both perfectly human and perfectly God. And we know when he went to the garden, he prayed fervently, passionately, great drops of blood. Lest there be any way that this cup be some level there of that kind of trepidation of what he would have to go through, what he would endure. But the Father shows up at this point again with encouragement, validation. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You can do it. You're my son. 
ever had that kind of encouragement from a father or a father figure? When you're about to face maybe your greatest trial ever, your greatest test, and you're not sure if you can do it, your uncertainty if you've got what it takes, I don't know. I feel that it is almost bordered on blasphemy to consider that the thought that Jesus Christ might have. But there are several moments where his father shows up to encourage him, to validate him, to assure him. You can do it. You can do it. And that's what we see here. That's what I think part what we see encouragement, empowering him. But he doesn't end just there, that this is my son. He continues the statement, he finalizes it by saying, hear him. Hear him. Literally, that statement could be translated to be obedient to him. Again, if there ever need to be any other validation that Jesus Christ is God, there's no one else to listen to, no one else to be obedient to other than God. And if Jesus Christ isn't God, then why the emphasis on obedience to him? Time and time again, we see that in scripture when we dig deeper, how often the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ proclaimed and solidified. Obey him. He kind of chastises Peter there with that statement. Don't take it upon yourself to understand this. Obey him. Obey my son. As we get to this point, you know, all this takes place. The grandeur of this experience up on the mountaintop. And after the Father speaks, they're all alone. Verse 8, it says, Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus. Suddenly, as quickly as it came, it went. Everything back to normal. Now, not so much. Perhaps the new normal. And so often, uh, those experiences change us, move us. Eventually, you have to come down the mountain whenever you've been up there, whatever you've experienced. We all want to stay up there, just like Peter. We want to be up there with the tabernacles and just dwell there longer. Let's just stay here. This is so glorious. This is so exciting. I just want to dwell here. If you've ever been on the mountain, it's tough to live up there. In fact, the higher the mountain, it's almost impossible to live up there. 
you get past a certain height, you literally begin to die. Your body is working so hard just to function. You have to come down. And in some way, even in our lives, we cannot dwell in that point. Not on this side of glory, anyway. Not where the Lord intends us to be. He gives us those moments, those experiences to encourage us, to thrill us, to motivate us as we see what God is capable of, as we see what he can do. We can't live up there. Eventually we have to come back down, though, and be about the work he's called us to. But while you can't live up there, you can carry the experience with you the rest of your life, just as Peter did. Second Peter 1.18 says, And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. Imagine the rest of Peter's life, those events playing out, those scenes he saw, the things he heard. Sometimes we talk about that, what the things we like to see and talk to someone about. And just sitting down with Peter and being able to listen to him recount these stories, recount these events. no different than we give our own testimony to those around us and sharing what God has done in our lives. I love to tell the story. For those who've never heard, I love to tell the story. I also love to tell the story who know it so well. We need that encouragement too when we're going through hard times when our fellow believer has just been up on the mountaintop seen firsthand what God can do. It's powerful. Exciting. And it's a blessing. May we not keep those events to ourselves. We seek to share them and bless one another with them. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you thankful for your grace and love. We thank you for the reality that you are at work in our lives. As even when you take us up the mountaintop and bring us back down again. We can share that, encourage and bless others. We pray this in your name, Lord.